loving Father, over the years you have used many preachers to teach me your word. Some were at a distance, like John Piper or Warren Wiersbe or Chuck Swindoll or John MacArthur. Some have been close and personal, like Henry Blackaby, Keith Thomas, and Tim Cheney. Some have spoken through the ages, like Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, and A.W. Tozer. Others date back to the New Testament, like John, Paul, Peter, and James, as well as the Old Testament prophets like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. But as great as you, Father, have used each and every one of these men, and so many more, to be heralds and teachers of your word, all of them pair pale in comparison to Jesus. Your word records that one day he gathered the multitudes that had come out to the countryside to hear him. And he began to teach the greatest sermon that ever was, the Sermon of Sermons. Jesus taught that God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, who mourn and are in need of comfort, who are humble, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, whose hearts are pure. Gratefully, your son was not delivering a message of new commandments that we are to keep. The reality is there's only one man who could ever measure up to these standards, Jesus. He's the only one, the one who's only one that has ever had a heart like that is Jesus. As a result, we've gathered together today to worship you and him and to proclaim him as Savior and Lord and acknowledge our need for you, your spirit to reflect in our lives his message. Open our hearts today to your word and to your spirit and may someone see Jesus in our lives today. We are a needy people. And we lift our needs to you, the almighty God, as our great physician and comforter. We continue to pray for Joshua Moyer, for his wound that is refusing to heal. We also pray for Stephanie and Josh, that they may not grow weary. We pray for Stephane Cousins' grandmother, Cecilia, the chemo that she's going through. We pray that the infections would clear up quickly. We continue to pray for Vanessa Paluszczyk as her end of life is growing near. We also pray for the Ellison and Paluszczyk families. We pray for Debbie Broderick's daughter, Malia, who's been diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. We pray for Walter Carter, that he not grow weary in the course of rehabbing from home, at home from a stroke. We pray for Margaret Madsen for comfort as she resides at Quentin Memorial. We pray for Horace Smith and his health issues. For Jeannie Smith with the nerve damage that she's dealing with. For Richard Steele for health and Jim and Florence Wells for health. And for Daphne Wright who's battling the Ethers Daniels syndrome. Finally, we pray that you would graft today's message into our hearts. 
that we would be changed by your word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for worship. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. So that's fifth grade and under. They can head upstairs. They can actually head to the lobbies, meet their teachers. Parents, if you've already checked them in, you can just send them and pick them up upstairs at the end of the service. A few things going on um, in the coming weeks for you to know about. We have made a, a big push over really the last two months for this Better Man initiative um, that starts this week. The first sessions uh, for both the Tuesday night um, and the Wednesday morning session, those will start this week. So this Tuesday night at 6 and then this Wednesday morning at 6 as well. Um, and you can sign up for that on the app. Many of you already have. We have two great groups uh, starting for that. Um, also, we have a student conference coming up uh, next weekend, the 15th through the 17th. You can talk to AJ about that, but the lifted student ministry will meet um, as normal this evening. We have men's ministry breakfast on September 30th. We have a prayer conference on November 4th uh, that we really want you to be available for that November 4th prayer conference. We have some stuff leading up to it and some stuff following up from it that we're excited about sharing with you as we ask God to to go deeper with us um, through prayer in this church. And uh, lastly, there's a sign-up sheet on the back table for our children's Christmas choir. Uh, you can sign up for that or talk to uh, Emily or Jason Hundley for more information about those things. And as always, hopefully you were given one of these on the way in. Um, the QR code will help you get onto our email system and sign up for regular email updates on things like that. But this is a good sort of communicator for you of things going on in the life of the church. I'd love for you to turn to Mark 5 with me. And uh, what we'll do this morning, the scriptures won't be on the screen, but we're, we're going to stay in one passage. This is a passage that actually has parallels in Luke and Matthew as well, but we'll be in Mark 5, 21 through 43. One of the things about the human condition that we have to wrestle with is that it's sometimes in a fallen, sinful state. Those that need help the most are the most reticent to call out, reach out, and ask for that help that they need. Desperation will sometimes lead us into, there's all other options have been exhausted, there's no other choice, finally we'll reach out for help. But human beings are really good at tricking themselves into thinking, I can fix my own problems. There's a solution here. I can find it. I'll go about these right steps. But then when you get to the point of desperation, then you're faced with this dilemma. I, I'm outside of my own strength. I'm outside of my own expertise. I need outside help. And then you reach out for outside help. And, and if it's a medical situation, you reach for medical care. It's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. But there comes a point where medical care is exhausted as well. Medical advice and insight can only go so far. And then you're left with a question, do I turn to God? Do I turn to Jesus? And one of the sad things that we see in today's world and culture is that even in those most desperate of moments, sometimes turning to the divine, turning to the creator, in times of pain is sometimes just far from people's minds. 
because we've moved so far away from a culture that, that generally agrees on the basics of, of God's existence. You know, last week we looked at this religious leader, Nicodemus, and we talked about the difference between the religious mindset and the gospel mindset that's truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we say that sometimes we use language in the church, like we, we are not seeking religion or a religious relationship. We are seeking a relationship, a real relationship to God, to Jesus. This passage shows us where sometimes that religious mindset can really get in the way in a different sense. Because as I just said, sometimes the people that need help the most are most reticent to reach out and to ask for help. And why is that? Because they think that religion doesn't have the answers for them. They think that people of faith are going to judge them, question them. They think that there's going to be hurdles to jump through to get the help that they need. Because they see themselves, and they see themselves in light of, of what, what religion says, and they see religious people, and they think, I'm not one of those people. I can't reach out to the church for help. I can't reach out to Christians for help because I'm so broken. I'm so ashamed of who I am and what I have become. Well, today, we open Mark 5 to see two people that out of desperation have nowhere else to turn. One is a religious leader. One has a position of authority in his community. And one is as far away from a position of authority as you can get. These two were literally never in the same room for at least 12 years. They couldn't have even entered in to worship to the synagogue together because the condition of one precluded her from being anywhere close to it precluded her from having any meaningful relationships in her life. But both of these people come to Jesus, and they encounter Jesus face to face from a leadership position who's desperate and from a, a cultural outcast who's also desperate. And the goal for us, here's our goal, before we, before we even read the scriptures, the goal is to, again, fall in love with this Jesus that meets you where you are, that loves you as you are, and leaves you radically different and transformed. Because every single one of us, regardless of, of what we were dealing with before we walked into this room, before we walked into this building this morning, every single one of us needs Jesus this morning. And not in an intellectual way, in a real way. Needs an encounter, a touch, the love and the care of Jesus. And everyone you interact with this week will be the same. So we encounter Jesus today for our own benefit, for our own growth, for our own ongoing transformation. And then we walk out and go about our week, and the encounter we have with Jesus fuels us to encourage others to encounter this same Jesus because they need him just as desperately. And so with that in mind, we open Mark 5, 21, and we see this story unfold. And we'll read through it in a couple different sections. There's really three people interacting with Jesus. There's the man, Jairus. There's the woman who has a problem of bleeding. And there's Jairus' daughter. And we'll start in verse 21. And I'll just give some comments along the way, and then we'll kind of 
pulled it, pull it all the way together. As we see how a bleeding woman and a scared father encounter Jesus, the Son of God. Mark 5, 21. When Jesus is crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made, made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So here's our, here's our start. Here's our starting point. This is the first encounter with Jesus in this passage, and it's this guy named Jairus. We need to talk about who he is. It says he's a ruler of the synagogue. We don't know what city it is. Um, we know that it's along the Sea of Galilee. It's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. There's several options in there. Capernaum was there. Capernaum is the city where Jesus did most of his ministry in the Galilee area. There's several different cities along the western coast of the Sea of Galilee that could be where this is happening. But Mark doesn't tell us where it happens. Luke doesn't tell us where it happens. Matthew doesn't tell us where it happens. And all three record this story. And all three, and in all three there's, there's two stories kind of sandwiched together. This is something that Mark does in his writing. It's When you read the Gospel of Mark, there is a writing style approach that Mark uses that scholars have this really fancy term for. It's called a sandwich. Where Mark, in his writing and his biography of Jesus, often sandwiches stories. And he's telling a narrative about something that's happening in, um, in Jesus' life and his interactions with somebody. And there's part one, and then there's this other person and then there's part two. And so this is what happens with Jairus here. Jairus gets completely ignored for a few verses here. In God's good and perfect plan, he completely ignores Jairus and his daughter for a few verses to encounter another woman that's need is just as desperate and just as immediate. And so we have a sandwich of Jairus, woman with the problem of blood is what she's often called in scripture, and then Jairus and his daughter at the end. But Jairus is a leader in the community. It doesn't mean he's, he's a priest. It just means that he is one who organizes the worship of the Jewish synagogue. That's where they would read the law, the scriptures together, and they would discuss. Jesus is seen leading the worship in synagogues a couple times where he comes in and he reads from the law, and then they have a discussion about the law. That's the way the synagogue uh, worked in early Jewish life in this first century period of Judaism. So Jairus was respected. He was a Jew. He was devout. He was trustworthy. He was looked up to in the community. And he was desperate. So this is a man who's a religious leader as the ruler of the synagogue. And he sees Jesus get off the boat. And he's been waiting for this. It's like he's, he's sitting and he's watching out into the sea because the people had seen Jesus cross the sea. And he left. And on the other side of the sea is where you have this famous story of the demoniac, the, the man that's possessed by many demons. And Jesus casts the demons out of the man into pigs and they run into the water. That's just happened on the other side of the lake. And now they're waiting for Jesus to come back. And this one man in particular, Jairus is his name, is sitting there and is waiting in desperation so that as soon as he gets close to Jesus, he falls at his feet out of respect and out of desperation. I need you. And what, and what could lead a respected, a put-together, 
a educated leader in the community, what could lead him to fall at his feet? His little girl. Because his little girl is about to die. If you don't get the emotion of that, of that desperation, there's something about, about a man that maybe wouldn't have shown as much dis- desperation if it was his own life on the line. But his little girl, his 12-year-old daughter, that meant something. And here comes the desperation. It says he fell at his feet in verse 23. He implored him earnestly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made alive and well. And Jesus obliges and says, okay, let's go. And he acknowledges, he recognizes in going with the man, he recognizes this man is showing faith. This man recognizes me as something more than a guy that can just sit in the synagogue and interpret the law. This guy recognizes power because he had already done miracles and miracles of healing and deliverance in people around the community. So this guy saw something in Jesus and he was so desperate. He said, my little girl needs you. So in faith he came. And then we'll continue in verse 25. Now there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So let's stop for a second here and talk about this woman. Um, When Mark and the other gospel writers speak of her simply as a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, it's very clear in the context what they're talking about. This is menstrual bleeding. This is a problem that didn't just, it wasn't just a physical affliction. This was a physical affliction that caused a spiritual, a a worship-based affliction. Because here, I'll read to you um, from Leviticus chapter 15. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, She will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean until evening. When she is cleansed from her discharge, she must count off seven days, and after that, she will be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must take two doves and two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her discharge. You must, this is Leviticus 15, 30 and 31, You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. Here's what the law is saying to her. The law is saying that unless you can be blood free for seven days, you cannot enter into worship. And unless you can be blood free for seven days, no one can touch you or they will be made unclean by your uncleanness. So think about the 
the fullness of the situation here. The fullness of, of the shame. The fullness of the brokenness. This woman did not just have a health issue where she couldn't stop the bleeding. This woman had an issue that touched every area of her life because she could not touch any other person. It affected her family life, her relationships, her worship, her status in the community. Because what does the end of that passage I read say? Keep the Israelites separate from that which makes them unclean. So how is that interpreted in this mindset? What it is interpreted as is keep the Israelites separate from her. She's unclean. Keep away from her. And so think about what happens as this woman goes about her day-to-day life. People start to recognize her. It, It had been 12 years. You know who this woman is now in town because she's the woman that has been unclean for 12 years. It's interesting in in the language, it says that she had been having this issue of blood for 12 years. Some of the versions say she had been continually bleeding for 12 years. Some of them just say the issue had continued for 12 years. Uh, We don't know if she bled every day. And in fact, it may actually be more discouraging if she didn't. Because think about it. What if she didn't bleed every day? What if she just bled every five days or every six days? How discouraging would that be if occasionally the issue did stop and occasionally she got the hope of maybe, maybe I can be clean. Maybe I can go offer the sacrifices at the temple that the law requires. Maybe I can interact. Maybe I can hug my mother again. Maybe I can can establish a family someday. This woman would not have been able to be married and have a family, not in her condition. You know, you think back to the other points of desperation in the Gospels. What about the man that couldn't walk? You remember the paralytic man? He had four people that came with him. They they picked up, they dropped him through the roof for Jesus' healing, and Jesus healed him. Nobody came with her because nobody could touch her. And she couldn't touch Jesus. And so what you see here, here's here's what what, what the tension is in this story. If she touches Jesus and her plan doesn't work, Jesus is unclean. And the most well-known person in all of Israel in that day is suddenly made unclean by this woman. And think about how much that would continue to build the shame she was experiencing. And so this was a risk. Uh, Leviticus 15 didn't tell her to do this. Leviticus 15, the old covenant scriptures make it very clear. If you have one thing that's clean and one thing that's unclean, The unclean makes clean unclean, not the other way around. There's there's no place in Leviticus for her to be made clean by touching a rabbi, by touching a prophet, by touching a teacher. She she fills in the dots on her own. She's kind of winging it at this point. There's no religious Torah-based 
directive for her to get to this point where she thinks, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, that's what will work. This is just an action that is the fruit of desperation. There's no other options here. She's got no money. She's poor. Why is she poor? Because she spent it on all the doctors, and none of the doctors could help her. Have you ever been in that situation? It can be so frustrating. You know there's something wrong with you physically. You know that something doesn't feel right, and so you go to multiple doctors to try to figure out what it is, and then you start feeling like, well, maybe I'm the crazy person because no doctor can quite determine what's wrong with me. Maybe I just need to get over it. This had been this woman. She went to every doctor available to her. She spent all the money that she had and still nothing. And when there's nothing left, Jesus is the only option. So we'll pick up verse 28 again. She said, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she could feel in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples, who are very, very human, they don't get it. The disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? You can imagine the disciples in that moment. He gets off the boat. Jairus, this respected guy in the community, greets him off the boat and, sa- and falls down at his feet and says, come with me. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come with you. And then Jairus and Jesus are going through this crowd. It says a great throng was around them. There was a crowd of people in this, in this main street of this city, and they're all pushing, and they're all trying to get close to Jesus. They're trying to hear from Jesus. They want Jesus to work a miracle. They're thinking maybe we're going to get to see a miracle when he goes to Jairus's house and the little girl. They're pressing in, trying to see him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, who touched me? And you could see that in the disciples, you could almost imagine, Jesus, what are you talking about? Everybody, like everybody here has touched you at some point over the last 40 steps you've taken. We're just pressed in here. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not what I mean. He said, I felt power. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Now, okay, stop, stop here. Picture this again. Okay, remember what I said about this woman and her uncleanness and the Levitical law and her fullness of her situation and get the moment. What is she going to do? Because there's a possibility when she reached out to touch the fringe of his garment, there's a possibility that somebody was going to call her out and say that unclean woman made the rabbi, made the teacher unclean she's going to get busted and she's going to be publicly shamed and so what does she do when he turns and he looks and says who touched me she at first doesn't say anything probably for fear probably just not knowing what to say but also in awe of recognizing because it says she recognizes in an instant it worked it healed And so her silence, Mark says, is in one sense fear and trembling. Am I going to get in trouble for this? And in another sense, fear and trembling, this God really has saved me, really has healed me. 
So Jesus looks around. Who did, who did that? The woman, verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I don't think it's a coincidence that there's four people in this passage, Jesus, Jairus, this woman, and Jairus' daughter, and, one girl, and two women, two females, receive healing. An adult woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, the entire lifetime of this little girl, who was also 12 years old. There's probably, probably something there. But Jesus looks at this woman, standing next to this man who was advocating for his daughter. And this woman, that was living in shame and living in uncleanness, she didn't have a father to advocate for her that day. No dad showed up come and advocate for her healing. She had to come on her own. She had to risk everything. She had to risk public ridicule. She had to risk further shaming, and she had to press through the crowd on her own. There was no father there to say, Jesus, come heal my daughter. And Jesus, in that moment, meets her and says, daughter. Because what mattered most at that moment, not all that she had lost over the previous 12 years. But we can only piece together the, the pieces in our head to say she had lost her family. She had lost relationships. She had been ostracized. She was all alone. She had nothing when she came to Jesus. And what mattered in that moment was not what was lost, but what was gained. Daughter. Daughter of God. Daughter of Jesus by his healing and his redemption. Your faith has made you well. Go and be healed. One of the most beautiful and radical encounters when you see the fullness of the desperation and the fullness of the shame that she was experiencing, how alone she was, and you see Jesus' touch. Daughter, your faith has done this. Verse 35, we'll keep going, and we'll come back to her, don't worry. Verse 35, the story turns in sort of a dark direction for a minute there. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, means Jesus is talking to this woman. There came, the rulers, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So think about just for a moment. For a moment, everybody forgets about Jairus' daughter. All eyes are on this woman that is desperate on the ground. And all eyes are on Jesus as he proclaims her healing. And they recognize she truly has been healed and he has done it. We can't believe this. We recognize this woman as the problem with bleeding that no one in this town is allowed to touch. And it's been that way for 12 years. And in an instant, she's healed. Everything has changed. And then all of a sudden comes these messengers. They say, Jairus, you should just let Jesus go about his day. She's gone. And in a moment, it almost feels like Jesus has chosen one desperate ailment over another, chosen one need over another. And it feels like, did Jesus forget about the little girl? Did he forget about Jairus? He stopped to take time 
for this woman when it was urgent and Jairus made it so urgent and Jesus didn't get there in time and now this woman is healed and the daughter, the little girl is dead. But Jesus heard what they said and Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, do not fear, only believe. You can highlight that, you can write that down, you can make that a, a repeatable statement for the rest of your life. Do not fear, only believe. It will apply to anything and everything. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. This is, this is what, where it turns interesting. A very public healing. All of a sudden, Jesus cuts most of the crowd out. So many people following him up to this point. A great crowd are following him. And now even nine of the disciples can't go any farther. It's Jairus, Peter, James, and John. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. That was the tradition of the day. That was the culture of the day. The tension of this is so interesting because anytime a 12-year-old girl would die, we would weep. It would be tragic. But in the Jewish culture of the first century, when a loved one was lost, obviously you cried and wailed yourself, but there were also these sort of town mourners that would come in and would grieve on your behalf and you would actually hire people that were that was their job and their role in society and in life is they would make sure everybody knew how tragic how awful this loss was and they would mourn on behalf of the family on behalf of the young person who had died on behalf of any person that had died so the commotion that Jesus is speaking of in verse 39 is this commotion of this is not just immediately fa immediate family that's grieving. These are the outside grievers that are here. Verse 39, when Jesus entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Why did they laugh? Because they've done this before. We, this is one of the modern um, criticisms of scripture that just makes no sense. It's very arrogant. It, it, it looks at ancient cultures as if they're unintelligent and don't know what's going on. In the first century, people did not have x-rays. They didn't have medical technology like we have today, and they still knew when people were dead. This was not this really confusing thing for first century people where they put Jesus in the tomb accidentally when he wasn't really dead, or this girl was just passed out and she wasn't really dead. They had a whole class of society that were doctors, that cared for people. They knew when people were dead. And they had these people that were grievers. They knew when people were dead. So they laugh at Jesus because they said, we've been here before. We know what a dead person looks like. This is literally what I do. I cry and I wail and I mourn for dead people. This is my job. I know this little girl is dead. But nevertheless, they leave. He puts them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. 
this little girl was not forgotten by Jesus. Was not forgotten by God. Jesus had a plan. And he had time. He had time to take a break and engage with this other woman. But he didn't forget her. And he resurrected to new life a girl that lost her life after 12 years. She resurrected, and he resurrected to new purity a woman who had lost her purity 12 years ago and been living in an unclean state for 12 years. And these two women, young women, were meant to go together in Scripture in Jesus' life and encounter. They are tied together for all time in our Scriptures because of the way Jesus did this on the same day. But there's so many similarities and there's so many differences between one having a father to advocate and one not. One is little, one is, uh, is a grown adult. One is surrounded by family and mourners. One is all alone and ostracized from society. One was very public and one was very private. And you see, it, it was this point in Jesus' ministry where there were a lot of things that he was doing that were private. He didn't want everything he did to be proclaimed and to, to push him to a level of fame and notoriety too soon. But could Jesus have healed the woman that was bleeding in private? No. Because she would have still been ostracized. She should, still would have been seen as having an issue of blood. Her healing had to be public, had to be in the city square, had to be in front of everyone, including those that had called her unclean for 12 years and those that had shied away from her for 12 years. So her healing had to be public. And the little girl... It was in her own home, and it was almost a non-issue. It was just waking up a little girl who had fallen asleep. But don't read that as if she was asleep. No, she was dead, and Jesus has just raised a person that was dead to new life. We're going to bring it together with a few principles here of how Jesus encounters people. Number one, Jesus is interruptible. This is one of the most beautiful pieces of this whole picture. Jesus is interruptible. He's never too busy. He's always available. And he's available to be interrupted by the cultural outcast while he's serving the needs of the cultural leader. While Jairus, who is so well-respected in society, Jesus is attending to him. He is not more important than the woman who no one is allowed to touch that touches the fringe of his garment. Jesus is interruptible and is interruptible by anyone and everyone of any class, any society, any background, any nation, tongue, or tribe. Jesus is interruptible and he's there to save. Jesus, when he walked the earth, was never too busy. And God, your Father, Jesus shows us by his life that God, our Father, is never too busy is never so busy in keeping the, the planets in motion and keeping the planets rotating on axes. He's never too busy to hear your heart and to hear your prayer and to hear your request for healing and for your presence and to answer and to send his presence and to send his salvation. Number two, Jesus is not looking for general interaction, but for personal interaction. 
See, there's many people around touching Jesus. There's many people there that are having an encounter with Jesus. I've said that for this whole couple of months here, we're going to look at encounters with God. Jesus, God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit. Um, there's lots of people that will go back and say, for many, many years, I encountered Jesus that day. Because I saw Jesus, I was 15 people away from him, but I saw Jesus heal this woman. And then I saw him go off with this small group of people to Jairus' house. And there are people that will tell that story and be so encouraged by that story. But Jesus is looking for more than that. Jesus is looking to, to get down and to look at the woman on the ground and have a face-to-face -face conversation and Jesus is looking to go into the little girl's bedroom and to get down and to talk to her in an affectionate way. Little girl, get up. Jesus is looking to show his love and affection towards people. Not just general proclamation, I'm the Messiah, follow me. There's plenty of times Jesus speaks to crowds, but the beautiful moments where we encounter Jesus are those face-to-face -face interactions because that's the relationship he wants with us. By the Spirit of God, God the, the Father, and Jesus the Son, the three persons of the Trinity, in a personal interaction with sinners, with people that are so desperate in our need for him. She's looking for a cure the woman, she's looking for something. She's not looking to have a conversation with Jesus. Nicodemus, last week, he was looking for a conversation. He was looking for intellectual back and forth. He, she, he was looking to learn something. He was looking for something philosophical. She wasn't interested in a conversation. She knew she had no hope of having a conversation because she didn't have the cultural power that either Jairus or Nicodemus had. But she was looking just to experience the touch of Jesus. And that wasn't enough for Jesus. Jesus said, yeah, I'll heal you, but you need to see me face to face. You need to know me, not just as physical healer, but as savior, as Lord. In the kingdom of God, we seek to follow Jesus as disciples. But discipleship is not simply about getting our needs met and moving on with our lives. Discipleship is about regular encounters with Jesus, going deeper with Jesus through his word and through prayer, being continually connected and growing in that connection so that we know him and are known by him. And we actually are experiencing the overflow of that joy and connection. So Jesus is interruptible. Jesus is looking for personal interactions or encounters, and Jesus overcomes shame. And number four is Jesus overcomes fear. Because these two people, they have very different contexts. The woman comes to Jesus in shame. The man, Jairus, comes to Jesus in fear. She was unclean. She would have received, she would have received from the culture and the society of her day so many wrong looks, so many looks of judgment. And when Jesus calls her out and says, who touched me? It was probably at first received with, oh no, he's going to call me out. He's going to be like the other religious leaders. He's going to single me out for my condition, for my brokenness, 
for my shame and my uncleanness. She has to have this reaction of shame in the moment that he calls her out. And yet, the only thing he had to say to her was out of love and affection. It was a specific public healing for a woman that desperately needed Jesus and his touch. So, shame is one of the hardest things to overcome. That's, that's where I say, when we started today, sometimes the people that need Jesus the most are the most hesitant to come because of shame, because they think I'm, I'm too far off, I'm too sinful, too broken. Maybe it's what I've done myself as a sinner, or maybe it's the things that have been done to me. But shame is one of the biggest obstacles in keeping people from Jesus. And Jesus has this story here for us. And the scriptures record it, and they record it three different times. It's so important, it can't just show up in one gospel. It shows up in three gospels to show us this is something that everyone, see, a second on how the gospels were made. Four different people set out to write biographies of Jesus. They all emphasize different things. They all have different approaches. I told you, Mark likes sandwiches, so he tells stories in sandwiches. They, they, they do things differently in their writing. But this story had so defined who Jesus was in the eyes of people that Matthew, one of the disciples that was there as an eyewitness, he, he remembered it. Luke, in all of his research of multiple eyewitnesses, he heard the story and he had to include it. And Mark, who most likely used Peter as his primary resource, Mark had to include it because it loomed so large in Peter's mind. All three of them had to include this story because it's so important. Because a woman full of shame, a woman that had no hope, a woman who hadn't been to worship in 12 years, a woman who, who couldn't offer sacrifices on her own behalf, and nobody else could even offer sacrifices on her behalf either, because she hadn't been, been without blood for seven days. So there was no hope of sacrifices helping her. She was completely locked in by the law. And she could never become pure, never become clean. A woman that was the farthest off that anyone could get from being made pure in the law of, of God. Jesus comes in and in a second, with one touch, overcomes her shame. So whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, whatever that person that you're trying to minister to, care for, and love, whatever's holding them back from following Jesus because of their shame, remind them, Jesus overcomes our shame. Jesus overwhelms our shame. Jesus creates purity where there's impurity. And I told you, the woman, I, who knows where she got this idea from, because Leviticus didn't tell her that there was ever going to be a way for, something, for a person that was clean to make an unclean person clean. It was always the other way around. But Jesus tells us now, you're not going to make Jesus unclean. Jesus is going to make you, make you pure. He overcomes our shame and he overcomes our fear. Look at what Jesus says to the Father. Do not fear, only believe. Verse 36, Jesus has heard, as Jairus has heard, your daughter's dead, don't waste his time, let him go about his day, you go about your day. And Jesus says, do not fear, 
only believe. There's only one thing that Jesus, that Jairus can do. There's only one thing he can do in response to Jesus. It's just believe. It's just trust him. It's the challenge that Jairus faces and the challenge that everyone who meets Jesus faces. Am I going to believe or am I not? Am I going to believe in what I see and what circumstances are telling me is true about the condition that my daughter's in, about the challenge that we're facing? Am I going to believe what I see and what makes sense in my head or am I going to believe this Jesus and what he says is possible? The only thing he can do is keep believing. So Jesus, he's interruptible. Jesus is looking for personal interactions, not general interactions. Jesus overcomes our shame and Jesus overcomes our fear. And for every one of us today, the final thing to hear today is Jesus asks us to believe. And Jesus asks us, every one of us, he calls us, believe in me, Follow me. Seek me to have your impurity made pure. Seek me to have your shame washed away. Seek me to have your pain healed. He asks us to believe. But when you look at the life of Christ and you look at at stories like this, there's, there's a piece of them that are still hard. Because what if he doesn't heal? And that seems to be a struggle for so many of us in our day and age. Because the the Christianity we live with in 2023 seems so far removed from 30 AD where Jesus is just walking around touching people and healing them. And we pray and we pray and we pray for healing. And sometimes we we see God move and we, we attribute it to God that God is moving. But sometimes it doesn't seem like he is. People we love still die. Little girls go unhealed. People are not raised to new life. And so what do we do? Because 2023 seems so removed from 30 AD. But then you look at, you look at the man at the pool of Bethesda who was healed. It says there's a great crowd of people looking for healing. And how many does he heal? One. And then we look at the Gospels, or we look at the book of Acts. Peter and James come into Jerusalem And they see a man that had been begging for many, many years in a popular, high-traffic area of Jerusalem. And he begs them for money because he's he's not bold enough, not courageous enough to ask for healing. But he begs them for money. And the scriptures say, Acts says, he had been there for many years. And the people were astonished because he had been there for many years. Do you know what that means? He had been there in the days of Jesus. There are some points in the scriptures where Jesus heals everybody. He walks into a town and it says he healed all of the sick. And there are other points where he doesn't. And so this is a challenge for us. This is the question for us. Am I going to believe in a Jesus who is so radically powerful? And I see, and I I believe these stories, and he saves, and he heals, and he touches, and he cleanses. Why doesn't he do it every time? Why didn't he do it when I asked and I prayed? And this is where this call, do not fear, only believe, is for every single one of us.
even those of you that have said, I've already received Jesus, I'm walking in faith. But there's something, there's some question, there's some, some request that just didn't go answered quite the same way. And you're saying, why couldn't, why couldn't have been like Jairus' daughter? Why couldn't have been like the woman with the, the bleeding issue? Why couldn't I have been healed? Why couldn't my loved one have been healed? And the only response we get is the response that Jesus gives to the father who at the time thinks his daughter is dead. Do not fear, only believe. We know that in the end, Jesus is working all things to good, that all that is wrong with the world will one day be made right, that all that is unjust will one day be restored in God's divine justice, that those who are, who in love respond to Jesus by faith will be made righteous and, and reign with him for all eternity. One day, all will be restored. All will be right. There will be no doubt who was in charge this whole time. And Jesus' glory will be seen anywhere and everywhere. And right now, we're called to walk by faith. And believe that the God who loved that little girl and raised her. And loved that desperate woman and cleansed her. That God is loving us through every circumstance every trial, every painful moment, every doubt. And he's calling us, believe. Just believe and continue in the belief. The Greek sentence that Jesus says to Jairus is not believe as if you're believing for the first time. He literally says, do not fear, just keep on believing. It is a statement that assumes before that statement, there was no fear. Before he was told his daughter was dead, there was no fear. But when he was told his daughter was dead, that's when fear came. But the belief actually preceded the fear. He says, don't let fear enter, keep on believing. He affirms the belief that Jairus had until that moment and says, don't let it waver. So for Jesus, to us, to each one of us, the call is, Keep on believing. Do not fear when circumstances around your life, around your family, and around the society in which you live seem so dark and so broken. Do not fear. Keep on believing. And to the lost person that, that's not here today because of their shame or because of their doubt or because they've, they've tried religion and Jesus before and it just hasn't worked, this is our job, people. Brothers and sisters, this is our job to go and tell others, do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear, but call out to Jesus in desperation. Don't let your desperate shame, your desperate fear, your desperate doubt keep you from opening the door to the one that can answer all the questions and the one that will save you from your sin and make you clean again. I'm going to ask the band to come up and lead us as we close. But for each of us, there's a specific response that I believe the Spirit of God leads each of us to. And that specific response may be coming to the altar to pray for new eyes of belief, maybe coming to the altar to pray for a loved one that is lost, that needs to believe, maybe just standing and worshiping as a new kingdom citizen who's made righteous by the one who has called you to believe.
So let's respond to God's word together. We'll stand and we'll sing.